This is Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. Bell Shakespeare would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal and Wangal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. Ye elves of hills, brooks, standing lakes and groves, and ye that on the sands with printless foot do chase the ebbing Neptune and do fly him when he comes back, you demi-puppets that by moonshine do the green sour ringlets make whereof the you not bites, and you whose past time is to make midnight mushrooms that rejoice to hear the solemn curfew, by whose aid, weak masters though ye be, I have bedimmed the noontide sun called forth the mutinous winds, and twixt the green sea and the azured vault set roaring war. To the dread rattling thunder have I given fire, and rifted Jove's stout oak with his own bolt. The strong-based promontory have I made shake, and by the spurs plucked up the pine and cedar. Graves at my command have waked their sleepers, oped, and let them forth by my so potent art. But this rough magic I hear abjure. And when I have required some heavenly music, which even now I do, to work mine end upon their senses that this airy charm is for, I'll break my staff, bury it certain fathoms in the earth, and deeper than did ever plummet sound, I'll drown my book. Welcome to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm your host, James Evans, and that was Prospero's speech from Act 5, Scene 1 of The Tempest, read by our guest this week. He is the founding artistic director of Bell Shakespeare and one of Australia's most acclaimed theatre personalities. In a career of acting and directing, he's been instrumental in shaping the Australian theatre industry as we know it. In 1997, the National Trust of Australia named him one of Australia's living treasures. He's won numerous awards, including two helpments, and he's an officer of the Order of Australia. It is my great pleasure to welcome the legendary John Bell. John, welcome to Speak the Speech. Thank you, James. Good morning. Why did you choose this speech from Prospero to present for us today? Well, I guess there are not that many speeches that uh, stand out of context. Um, and this one I felt you could lift it from the play and present it as a piece of wonderful poetry. And it will, it will resonate, especially with those who know the story, of course. Mm. So why at the end of this play, why is Prospero deciding to break his staff, to drown his book? What's going on for him? Well, this is a very big question, James, and it could be quite a long answer, so I'll try and keep it uh, relatively short. So uh, Prospero has been banished to this island, or he's been pushed out to sea in a boat with his baby daughter by his brother, who's usurped his throne. He's landed on this island, and he's been here for 12 years, and uh, his daughter Miranda has grown up, and uh, he plots this tempest to... uh, bring all the uh, his enemies onto this island. He wrecks their ship, basically, and captures them all on this island. And so his whole career in magic has been twisted to this end to take revenge on all those who've uh, wronged him. And uh, he gets them all together, and he makes this magic circle that I've just uh, described and has them all inside it. And his better angel, if you like, Ariel, his creative spirit, uh, says to him, if... Uh, you know, you should, you should forgive them. And Prospero uh, is quite struck by the thought. And, uh, and uh, Ariel says, I would, sir, were I human. And uh, Prospero suddenly realises his own humanity and frailty and equality with the rest of mankind. And so he drops this, uh, this act of being the magus, the great magician. Um, he uh, decides to 
reject all his art, which is kind of dark and rather pagan, forgive his enemies, acknowledge his dark side, release his creative spirit, bequeath all to his children. Uh, this, to me, is Shakespeare signing off. I find it a deeply autobiographical piece. You can argue against that and say, well, there are reasons why it's not, but I think all great art is autobiographical to some extent. And this one, to me, is very much about Shakespeare himself leaving his magic island, uh, abandoning his art, letting go his creative spirit, etc., and resigning himself to retirement, old age and death. So uh, I think it's a very, very poignant speech. Very hard to let go of your career, your art, your, the things you've been used to and felt good at, but that's what, <laughs> that's what <laughs> retirement's all about. But um, for you yourself, John, um, I don't think there's any word of retirement. I mean, even after... Um, you stepped down from being artistic director of Bell Shakespeare five years ago. I don't think you've ever been so busy. You, you, you've been working non-stop. And, until a certain virus arrived on the scene, James, oh, then I think yes. we all stopped and mm. uh, have stopped the last six months or so. So uh, that's been a quiet time. But no, I don't regard myself as uh, out of the business, just, uh, you know, uh, doing the odd thing that comes along that uh, takes my fancy, which, uh, you know, is a, a very nice way to gently fade into the, into the sunset. Now, now with Prospero, <laughs> now with Prospero, I mean the, the images in this speech are absolutely extraordinary. The way that he summons the the, the different um, uh, parts of nature, the elves, the demi puppets, the um, the moonshine, the midnight mushrooms. Is this sort of the culmination of Shakespeare's work as a as a theatrical poet? Well, I think I find this very um, specific. The the uh, spirits that he summons up, um, they're very much uh, country folklore kind of spirits. They're not the grand sort of um, fairy tale spirits at all, but uh, little uh, little elves that um, you know dance on the seashore and uh, chase the waves and run away when the waves come back. They're like little children squealing and running away from the waves and the ones that make the midnight mushrooms and uh, rejoice to hear the curfew because then they can get to work. Uh, they're all very sort of um, country, rural, rustic images, especially the one about the, um, the ones that make the, the green sour ringlets, the, the, the fairy rings of daisies in the grass. And, the, and it takes a countryman's eye to notice that the ewes don't eat those particular plants. They, they avoid them. And they would say, oh, because they're magic, because they're fairy rings. It's just, you know, that's, that's their explanation of them. So it's very much the memory of a, a boy growing up in Stratford and roaming around the fields and observing nature as he did so wonderfully and so thoroughly. And uh, they say to me that feels very much like, uh, like Shakespeare talking. Yeah, you can see Shakespeare's background and upbringing and learning throughout all of the plays. And I know that you've faced this question before and you've rebutted it so beautifully, but tell me briefly your argument again when people say, well, Shakespeare didn't really write Shakespeare, it was the Earl of Oxford or some other person. Well, you can have a, a, a real ding-dong battle about that and pick all sorts of details and uh, you know, fling bits of text at each other, but I, I take my cue from Ben Jonson, who wrote the, uh, you know, the um, poem in the front of the first, uh, first edition of the... Uh, collected works, saying that this was the man, there's his picture, I knew him, I loved him, we worked together, uh, he was our greatest poet, our greatest tragedian, our greatest comed comic writer, and that's William Shakespeare from The swan, Sweet Swan of Avon, uh, and then letters from, uh, testimonials from other actors and writers and uh, playwrights who knew him and worked beside him, uh, Hemingway and Condell particularly, who were part of his company and who got the, all the plays together and published that first folio. So there is so much... Uh, hard evidence from people who knew him and worked with him and would have no reason to concoct some you know, cock and bull story about another author. Uh, and as you say, uh, his work just smacks so much of a, a countryman's experience and, uh, and, and um, understanding of, the, of, of nature. They're not the works of a, a city poet or a, an aristocrat. Um, they're, they're very much a, you know, a, a middle-class man who worked his way to the top um, very assiduously working uh, for um, aristocrats and working in the court uh, a lot besides uh, King James and Queen Elizabeth so he got to know the court very very well at first hand um, by having to sort of hang around and waiting to perform for them so his knowledge of, of, of country life and rusticity was um, you know supplemented by his understanding of the workings of politics. 
I think there's obviously a bit of snobbery that in fact started during Shakespeare's own lifetime because he didn't go to university, because he was from the country. Uh, you know, there's that famous pamphlet um, attributed to Robert Greene during his lifetime where he's called an upstart crow. And then later on, Thomas Loney in the 19th century says that, um, you know, no way could this country boy have, have written uh, written these plays. So, so I think it comes from that kind of particular British snobbery about him not going to university. Yeah, that's partly it. Um, I don't think university is any great big deal back then. Um, uh, ben Johnson didn't go to university. Marlowe did, but uh, Shakespeare couldn't because he was married uh, at the age of 18 and... Uh, you had to be a bachelor to go to university. So um, you know, it, it is uh, simply snobbery. And you forget that uh, other great artists, uh, Mozart, Bach, Beethoven, uh, Van Gogh, they all came from humble backgrounds. You don't get many aristocrats who are great artists that haven't, you know, they haven't got the, uh, the, 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 the interest. They don't have to earn a living. Mm, mm. Uh, people don't sit down to create great art for art's sake. They, they do it to earn a living. And Shakespeare was a very canny businessman and a hard worker. Mm. Um, acting in the daytime, writing at night, um, just as, as uh, Mozart and Beethoven and Bach slaved over their work. Uh, you do it to, because it's a job, mm. and later it's pronounced to be great art, and that's because it's a, a creative genius at work and working night and day, night and day, to do this stuff. You don't sit down and write the works of Shakespeare in your spare time, right. as an aristocrat would have done. You, <laughs> it's just not possible. You don't paint the Sistine Chapel on the weekend yeah. you know, in your spare time. <laughs> exactly. Now, in a lot of these late plays of Shakespeare's, including The Tempest, there are a lot of themes of forgiveness, reconciliation, letting go. We see this come up again and again um, in Pericles, uh, in Cymbeline, in The Winter's Tale. What do you make of that from Shakespeare coming to these themes at the end of his career? Well, again, you have to construct, if you want to, a kind of a lifetime um, arc for, for him um, and make it as personal as you choose to. But the fact is that he started out, uh, when he first arrived in London, as a, a jobbing actor and jobbing writer, uh, working on sort of slapstick comedies and farces like The Comedy of Errors or Two Gentlemen of Verona, Taming of the Shrew, and then advances towards very sophisticated um, comedies about youth and love and sex and romance into um, heroic uh, histo history plays, the, the great English cycle, and the Roman plays examining politics and the workings of, uh, of, of power, and then goes into a, a dark area with those plays like Measure for Measure and uh, Troilus and Cressida, the great tragedies which really plumb the depths of human misery and, uh, and, and arrogance. And you think, my God, what an extraordinary... Uh, way to finish your career on that, on that uh, level of uh, gloom and doom and tragedy. And then he turns around and finishes off with four fairy tale romances about love and forgiveness and reconciliation and uh, rebirth. Uh, and I think, well, that's a wonderful way to end your life and your career. If that, and as I said, I think all great art is autobiographical to a, a very large degree. If that was his life's arc and he came out at the end of it, a feeling uh, that he'd uh, plumbed the depths, he'd examined the, the worst of the human condition, but could then uh, face reconciliation, forgiveness, love, rebirth, and sign off very happily. That's a great way to finish your life and your career, I think. Mm, mm, absolutely. And then, John, you in 2015 uh, chose The Tempest as your final play to direct for Bell Shakespeare. Was that by design, do you think, or is that a coincidence? I think that was largely coincidence when I chose it because I'm not sure that I was thinking of uh, finishing the, uh, with the company at that stage when the play was chosen. But uh, as, as with autobiography being sort of uh, unintentional, maybe it was a, a subconscious choice to choose that to go out on. But uh, it was a play I'd, I wanted to do again and uh, I loved very much and it seemed the right time to do it. So it just, just happened really to coincide with my leaving the company. Now, John... You have played pretty much every great role in Shakespeare early in your career, obviously Hamlet and Macbeth, and then King Lear famously a couple of times, Falstaff. Which one do you think is your... What's been your favourite experience? Well, I guess uh, 
Richard III was probably the one I most enjoyed because it's one of the most enjoyable roles to play. It's such a, a, a charming, complicite kind of role that you are working often with the audience most of the time. And uh, it is fun to give yourself a bit of a walk on the wild side and, uh, you know, play somebody that the audience is, finds appalling. Um, it's, a, it's a great release, uh, rather than trying to play someone who's um, so, you know, admirable and, uh, and, and faultless. That's, that's rather harder to bring off, I think. Everyone likes playing the villain. And uh, Richard is such a, a juicy role and uh, a lot of great, great comedy in it. Um, and it's also when you don't necessarily have to identify with as strongly as you do with some of the others. You can be a bit more objective about Richard. Although just recently I was reading an autobiography, uh, not an autobiography, a biography of Charles Dickens. Uh, and uh, one of the things that emerged from that was how much he felt his mother hated him and how a lot, a lot of his writing is uh, trying to work around that with uh, you know, ugly stepmothers and wicked mothers and uh, neglectful parents and uh, useless parents. And he tells his own life story again and again in his books uh, through, under different guises. And uh, I think if Richard III, if I were to, to do it again, which I won't be doing, I'd make that the basis of it, that his mother told him that she hated him and wanted him to die. And from his earliest days as a child, she reviled him and, uh, and you know, despised him. And that's enough, I think, to explain Richard. You don't have to look for the, the, the physical deformity to find his grief. It's that, that he was rejected at birth. I think that would be a really good psychological uh, springboard to play Richard. Now, John, going back to um, when you grew up in Maitland, New South Wales, what kind of a child were you? Were you a little performer as a child? Were you jumping around, putting on shows for the family? Yes, I was from a very early age. <laughs> um, I'd forgotten all about that, but there, there is photographic evidence that uh, that was the case. It wasn't until I was about I mean, 12, 13, that age, that you, I retired into myself and developed a very self-conscious stammer, stutter, and uh, found it very hard to perform. Mm -hmm. I still wanted to, so I actually made myself do it and go on stage and overcome that, that stutter mm -hmm. and, uh, and rediscover my, my joy in performing. But it was just that you go through that period of teenage angst and, and sure. embarrassment and insecurity, and uh, I, was, I guess I was trying to act my way out of that yeah. by playing other, other people. If I was being other people, I could find my voice and find my confidence. You went to the uh, Morris Brothers College there in Maitland. Is that where you first encountered Shakespeare? Yes, I did. Um, about at the age of 13, I think, uh, uh, the English teacher marched into the room and slammed down copies of Midsummer Night's Dream on each desk. <laughs> but uh, instead of saying, open your books and read three lines each and then pass the book on, he didn't do that, which is the, the surest way, of course, to kill Shakespeare. Mm. Uh, for kids, but he acted the whole play for us. He would march up and down the aisles, declaiming the, the lines, uh, playing all the different voices, describing sets, costumes, the, the, the scenery, the, the, the lighting, the, the gags and pratfalls. He brought the play to life. He performed it for us. And so we couldn't wait for the next Shakespeare class. Mm. And then he took us off to the movies to see Olivia's Richard III, Hamlet, Henry V, etc. So he was a poet himself and loved drama, mm. and Shakespeare especially. And when uh, another teacher came into my secondary years, or later years in high school, uh, he was also a, th a theatre buff and just loved performing and loved, uh, loved Shakespeare. And he was the one who really encouraged me and said, you've got to go on stage and uh, you know, do, it for, do it as a living. That was it. So some inspiring teachers in school, isn't that wonderful? And often we hear that that is the story, that, uh, that kids have been inspired by one or two amazing teachers and that has set them off on their path. I hear that story so often and I know it's true. It's not just uh, an influence. They actually can shape your life's path. If it's the right person and the right decision, they actually sort of uh, determine what you're going to do. And uh, so uh, that's why, to me, uh, education has always been such a vital part of Bell Shakespeare from the very first season, the very first year of the company. We had actors going into the schools, uh, actors at work, performing for the kids and bringing the plays into the classroom. Um, all, over, all around the country because I'm still, in a sense, paying back that debt to those teachers, I feel. Now, you were part of that troupe, weren't you, John? You actually went into schools in that first year of Bell Shakespeare, didn't you? Oh, yes, I did indeed. And what was that experience like, um, performing in front of kids in school halls? 
Oh, it was it was fine as long as you uh, have a good sort of patter going and uh, can talk to them and not just perform the pieces, but you know, keep the the dialogue in between interesting and ask a few questions and get the kids to respond. Uh, I th I thoroughly enjoyed it, and it was very very um, clear when you walked through the school gates what sort of school it was if the kids were going to be responsive or not. It all came from the top, and if you could tell if the teachers were enthusiastic, uh, the kids would be. If the teachers were indifferent or um, you know regarded us as being a bit of a nuisance, then that's the way the kids would see us. So uh, I, I'm, I'm very sort of um, anxious that teachers too should be enthused and educated, not just the kids. So in 1959, you go down to Sydney University, uh, a whole new world opens up for you there. You're mixing with um, the likes of Jermaine Greer and, and so on. And you joined the Sydney University Dramatic Society. Is there a lot of Shakespeare going on at university? Uh, there was a heap of theatre going on. I actually joined the rival group. I, I joined the Sydney University Players, who were oh, in right. opposition to the uh, to Sydney University Dramatic Society. But there was uh, each each of the the colleges, uh, St Paul's, St John's, St Andrews. They all had their drama dramatic uh, clubs as well. So there was heaps of theatre going on, and uh, the fact there wasn't much else in Sydney going on. You had the, the big musicals uh, once a year at the J.C. Williamson's playing at one of the Her Majesties or His Majesties, whichever. Mm. Uh, you had the on the ensemble was just getting going with Hayes Gordon. That was a kind of a teaching uh, theatre, teaching yeah. the method and uh, a, quite a, a little theatre and, a, and a, a, but very serious in its work, um, but basically amateur. And then there was the independent across at uh, North Sydney, which is North also Sydney, amateur. Yeah. So uh, if you wanted to see Shakespeare or Beckett or Brecht or Ionesco or, uh, you know, you had to go to the university. And we had quite a large, what we called downtown audience. Mm. And uh, that's where I met a gentleman named Tony Gilbert, mm. who came to see a uh, production I was in and uh, wrote me a fan letter and we became friends. And he later became um, the, the, uh, the real keystone of the Bell Shakespeare Company many years yeah. later. Yes, I want to. I definitely want to ask you about Tony and and philanthropy a little bit later. Um, but once you got through university, I love this story that you in 1962 you you hired out the Genesian Theatre and you put on a one man show of Shakespeare's great speeches. You, you just kind of boldly announced your arrival to the industry. What was the reaction to that? <laughs> well, it was a very cheeky thing to do, I know. But uh, when you're at that age, <clears throat> you know, 21 or 22 or something. Um, one is full of chutzpah, so uh, I put on a show called This Sceptered Isle, <laughs> and uh, I took the Shakespeare kings, starting with King John and working through all of them, Richard II, Henry IV, Henry V, Henry VI, Richard III, Henry VIII, uh, oh. telling the story of uh, English history through Shakespeare and performing all those great speeches, quickly mm. changing hats and crowns and cloaks and so on. Correct. And um, it, it, it went down quite well. In fact, uh, the Sydney Morning Herald came to see it, and... Wow. Uh, Roger Covell, the, the critic, gave it a, a big tick. And so when I turned up to audition uh, for the old Tote Theatre Company a few months later, they'd all heard about it. They hadn't seen the show, but they'd read this very good <laughs> review. And, and that got me through the door. So it was yeah. a, a worthwhile investment. That's fantastic. That's almost better, isn't it, um, if people have heard <laughs> the buzz about it? <laughs> Much better than if they'd seen it. I might not have got that gig with the old Tote. <laughs> So the old tote was just starting up then in the early 60s and um, I think you were in the founding um, group, the first group, weren't you, that, um, That's right. that, that joined the company. Yes. And it... not soon, not, not, not long after that, you played Hamlet for the first time, 1963. What was that like? Well, that was my, uh, my, my uh, second or third job in the company. Uh, the company started in 1963. Uh, we did the Cherry Orchard, then we did a couple of... Uh, uh, German plays, including The Fire Raisers by Max Frisch. And then the third play was Hamlet. And uh, I was amazed that, uh, you know, only a few months after joining the company, I was offered this role. I was astonished, um, but of course, totally thrilled and delighted and overcome by it. So, uh, yeah, I played Hamlet at the age of 20. I was 22, I think I was still 22 at the time. Yep. Uh, much, much too young, of course, to know what, what the hell I was doing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, then the following year, I did Henry V uh, for the Adelaide mm. Festival and thought, well, where do I go from here? I've peaked. I've done Hamlet and Henry V. There's nowhere, left, at the age of nowhere left to go. Right. I know, I know. Nowhere left to go except down. Well, in fact, that, that was the point at which um, you headed off to London, and that was 
1964. Did you get a scholarship? How was it that you, you went off to the UK? Uh, well, it was, uh, yes, the uh, British Council offered me a scholarship. Uh, a very nice lady took me to tea and said, uh, look, we've got some money left over and we have to spend it. How would you like to go to London? <laughs> and uh, right. sure, sure thing, I grabbed it. And uh, I applied to the Bristol Old Vic School mm. and I went there uh, beginning of, in 64. And uh, after six months, the principal said, look, uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company is uh, auditioning. They want 10 young actors from drama schools around the country to go to Stratford and form this new... A little experimental group. Mm. Uh, do you want to audition for that? And I said, sure. So I went and auditioned for uh, Michel Saint-Denis, who was the, um, the director of this group, and mm. uh, I was accepted into that. So uh, after only six months at Bristol, I was off to Stratford and uh, stayed with the company then for the next four and a half years. Do you remember what you did for your auditions? What, w what were your party pieces, John? Uh, <laughs> uh, it was the one I did at high school. Uh, mm. When uh, I was in my final year of high school, that uh, second English teacher I mentioned, a man called Brother Geoffrey, said to me, Look, uh, I think we should do a play night. Uh, the Maitland Morris brothers had never done a play night in its history, and I think they haven't done one since. But he said, uh, if you want to choose the pieces, uh, you can um, you know, choose whatever roles you want to play and you can direct it and I'll hire all the costumes from Sydney for you. <laughs> so <laughs> I said, okay, uh, a, a very modest uh, bill of fare. Let's do Oedipus Rex. <laughs> and uh, then all my favorite scenes from Henry IV playing Hotspur. Great. And then we'll devise a pantomime with me being the clown and yeah. uh, in involving all the kids in the pantomime. So mm. that was the evening's entertainment. And uh, as I say, you couldn't... Uh, be much more uh, arrogant than, to, than that to choose that bill of fare, but I did. And so Hotspur became my party piece, and that's what I had auditioned to get into the Royal Shakespeare Company. Brilliant. And obviously 1965, a very famous production of Hamlet, in which you played Rosencrantz. Uh, tell me about that production, because it, it, it became a bit of a sensation, didn't it, when it first launched? Yes, it did. Uh, the actor involved was David Warner, who I th hasn't uh, really um, managed to sustain a great career, I think. He's still around, but uh, he, uh, he didn't uh, really uh, maintain a career like many of the others in that company did. Um, but he was an instant success with the younger generation because he played Hamlet as a very sort of gangly, pimply, um, restless teenager. And it just hit the mark with that generation. And so every night we'd have um, the street full of sleeping bags, kids sleeping out on the pavement at Stratford to get wow. to buy a ticket for the next morning. To get morning. Hamlet tickets. To get Hamlet tickets, exactly. Amazing. <laughs> uh, and it was a very smart production. Peter Hall did it. And it was very um, highly political and, uh, and very um, of its time. Uh, it seemed very much about uh, that generation. And the, the older generation were dressed in kind of Tudor versions of uh, Whitehall politicians in like sort of uh, uh, pinstriped suits kind of uh, look about them. Uh, and so it was uh, very fast moving and very um, uh, clear. And, uh, and David Warner's performance was the one that really sealed it. A lot of the older audiences didn't like him at all. He was, they thought he was a bit of a teenage brat, just like their own kids were. Right. Uh, but, <laughs> it was, but it was the younger generation that really embraced it. And uh, mm. had we we took it uh, everywhere took it to london took it took it to moscow and leningrad so it was a you know a big success wow the disaffected youth of the of the 1960s yeah absolutely yeah and that's what i think when shakespeare works it does that so well it just hits the chord of that particular generation or yeah. in, and it doesn't necessarily be i mean just the young people the, the whole gen the whole zeitgeist is some, somehow uh, tapped into and the play suddenly seems terribly relevant and terribly meaningful for now it seems to do that generation after generation doesn't it i mean i Absolutely. still feel that about hamlet of course yes of course of course hamlet always does that if it's done well it'll strike a chord with everybody what else did you play in um your four and a half years at the rsc what, what were your memorable roles there oh look there were no, no great memorable roles really i did uh, paris in romeo and juliet i did various parts in the henry four plays and um in Twelfth Night, but nothing, nothing major. I was uh, partly assigned to an education team, but it was a little bit like Actors at Work. That's where I got the idea from. Uh, and, and we took off in a little bus and uh, went round the schools uh, all over England and Scotland 
uh, with uh, little versions of Shakespeare and other plays. And that was a fantastic experience. And um, as I said, that was the seed of my... Uh, when I started uh, the Bell Shakespeare Company, I, I drew on that experience uh, because it was uh, so, f so fascinating and so successful. You're listening to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm James Evans. My guest today, John Bell. John, in 1970, you came back from the UK to Australia, ready to work, ready to bring what you'd learnt back into Australia. What was the state of Shakespeare at the time? Because I know that you were about to stir things up. What was happening at the time in the 70s? Oh, um, not, not much, frankly. Um, the the uh, old Tote Theatre was still operating and uh, doing a sort of a pretty predictable repertoire of uh, every year of a, we'll do a, a Shakespeare some years and a, a Bernard Shaw and an old coward and, a, you know, the, the newest uh, Broadway or West End hit. Uh, doing them all quite res respectably, um, but um, it, needed, it needed a bit of a shake-up and um, that's when Tony Gilbert approached me and said he had some money put aside and he'd like to see it used to promote Shakespeare. There wasn't enough being done, and what was being done wasn't of a very high standard. And uh, so uh, with his uh, money, I was able to go to the Australian Elizabethan Theatre Trust and say, can we start raising funds? Here's some seeding money. Can we uh, start raising funds? So they gave me an office and a telephone and a mailing list, and off I started raising enough money to launch the company the following year. Um, that year, I, I was teaching at NIDA, that's why I came back, was to be the acting head at NIDA. But after a year of that, I realised I wasn't ready for that. I wanted to be more hands-on and running a theatre companies. And that's how the, um, you know, the, uh, well, that was the, the first, the, the Nimrod started. Nimrod. And after the Nimrod, you know, the Bell Shakespeare Company. Mm. So the Nimrod um, in the early 70s, you yourself returned to playing Hamlet uh, nine years after your first um, go at Hamlet. How was that different the second time, having had all that experience, coming back to it nine years later? What, what else did you discover with Hamlet? Well, we played Hamlet in a very small space. Uh, we, we, we built the Nimrod Theatre out of the old stables in uh, Nimrod Street in King's Cross. We made that into the, the Nimrod Theatre. And uh, Hamlet was one of our earliest productions. And it was, a, as you know, with the stables, it's a very tiny space. And so we had a cast of, I think it was eight or nine actors. So they pretty well filled the stage. And um, uh, I think uh, because it was in such proximity, we could make the whole thing very intimate. And we covered the walls in mirrors to make the place look um, infinitely larger. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot about holding the mirror up to nature and seeing yeah, one's sure. reflection in the mirror and mm -hmm. seeing the audience in the mirror. Uh, the, the, the ghost was seeing myself in the mirror, if you like. Mm. So um, it was, um, it, it broke with tradition. Um, it wasn't uh, set in sort of fancy period costume or any of that kind of stuff. It was, uh, uh, and I didn't really notice until I read Catherine Brisbane's review saying how, how refreshing to hear it spoken with Australian accents. Right. And that hadn't been a, a conscious decision. We just did it because it seemed so natural. And mm. I thought, well, that's mm. actually quite an important point that she's made there. Uh, we have to stop trying to sound British and trying to imitate the uh, overseas companies of whatever from a country and find our own way of doing the classics, especially mm. Shakespeare. How do we relate to those characters? How do we speak those lines, etc.? So that was the... The mission of the Nimrod was to uh, encourage new Australian writing yep. and uh, promote uh, uh, new plays, but also to look at the classics and especially Shakespeare and say, how do we now bring these into focus and do them in a way that relates very directly to an Australian audience in the 1970s? And was there some resistance to that in Sydney? I, mean, I think I've heard one story where a woman kind of bailed you up in an event and said, how dare you mess with the classics like this? Was oh, there much of that? We've had a few of those, of course, yes. Some of the critics objected strongly. And, um, and of course, without some of our earliest Nimrod productions, we did go all the way with making it as, as Aussie as possible, you know, right. to, uh, with the broad Australian accents and, uh, you know, uh, a, a very sort of um, localised behaviour, which got up the noses of some critics. But now that is so taken for granted all these years later that, uh, you know, it doesn't... Uh, would never occur to anybody to criticise that, but of course, we, if, we, when you break with a certain tradition, it uh, it does it does offend the purists. 
So obviously the Nimrod and uh, later on you were instrumental in the founding of the, the Belvoir Street Theatre as well uh, in the 1980s, wasn't that? Well, it wasn't the Belvoir then. Um, we, we outgrew the stables in King's Cross and wanted a larger venue. And so we were able to acquire the um, old uh, tomato sauce factory in Belvoir Street. Mm. Uh, that was all a huge uh, block of buildings and they knocked it all down except that one building that's left which is now the Belvoir Street Theatre mm. but that was the new Nimrod for the next uh, nine years right and uh, then uh, after I left uh, the, left the Nimrod and went out freelancing then it became the Belvoir Street Theatre you mentioned Tony Gilbert and he's he's obviously had a huge impact on your life and your work uh, as a like-minded person, as a philanthropist, someone who's willing, almost as a like an old-school arts patron, to to put his money where his mouth is and and support you no matter what. To what extent is uh, philanthropy crucial to the life of an arts company, as opposed to say public money, government support, that sort of thing? Oh, look, I think it's uh, it's the only way for the arts to to flourish is to have private philanthropy. Uh, government money is uh, generally rather grudgingly given. We're still not very uh, generous in investing in the arts. It's not a it's not a, a, a donation from the government. It's an, an investment in a very important and thriving industry, um, and not many politicians get that. But if you have a, a strong core of private donors and uh, and supporters, there's a loyalty that builds up, a family feeling that builds up. Um, that uh, will also stand you instead in hard times um, and, and uh, be, come on the journey with you, which governments, of course, aren't obliged to do because they, they change so regularly and arts ministers change so frequently and they're just there to do a job. So I think it's, uh, it's been the, the story of all great arts companies um, from Shakespeare's day on uh, um, that it's, uh, it's, it's the private individual um, and, and a group of individuals who support and maintain all art forms, not just theatre, but uh, the great orchestras and art galleries and uh, dance companies, etc. It's it's fundamental, and it's um, it's the proof of a civilized society that um, the citizenry uh, understand that it's, it's crucial to the um, you know civic well-being, and support that financially. And Tony certainly, for many years, was the backbone financially of the company, wasn't he? How many years was it? Do you think that Tony really stood there and underwrote the company before it managed to get some momentum and, and stand on its own two feet? I'd say for uh, for at least the first seven years of our existence, when we had no government funding at all, or occasional small grants for special projects, but no no ongoing funding, and we had no um, uh, uh, sponsors corporate sponsors for the first four or five years either. So uh, it depended very heavily on Tony p picking up the bill at the end of the season, which he did year after year, and we just gradually uh, weaned ourselves off his generosity and started to attract uh, corporate sponsors and private donors and build up a, you know, a, a body of support that uh, was independent of his generosity. Now, John, I found uh, an article from the Sydney Morning Herald uh, dated November the 20th, 1990 here, and it's the announcement of the founding of Bell Shakespeare, and it says, John Bell promised yesterday a Shakespearean troupe which would, quote, stir the possum. <laughs> quote, to put it more eloquently, he said, <laughs> quoting from Hamlet, to hold, as twere, the mirror up to nature. 20 years to the day since he began rehearsing Biggles, the Nimrod Theatre Company's first production, the actor-director unveiled the Bell Shakespeare Company, consisting of 12 actors who will tour Australia in a circus tent from January next year. Now, what did you mean, first of all, by stir the possum, John? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, uh, especially because they, you know, stir the shit or some other sort of Australian colloquialism, just to, <laughs> just to get things moving, to sort of, uh, you know, get up people's noses a bit, make people sit up and take notice. So rather than do, um, you know, a traditional Shakespeare production in the old-fashioned way, we would do something a little more contemporary, a bit more, um, you know, in connecting with our audience. I, get, I think that's all I meant. And just a, mm. a, bit, a bit of a tease too, of course, to the press to say, uh, you know, watch this space. And then, of course, the famous circus tent. Uh, where was that, Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra? Yes, uh, no, only Sydney and Canberra. Um, mm -hmm. we, we decided by the time we'd finished our Sydney and Canberra seasons, the tent wasn't uh, the best possible venue for us um, because the acoustics weren't good enough, the sight lines were too 
too dodgy. And so we decided uh, to ditch the tent and go into the Athenaeum Theatre in Melbourne. And we stayed there for the next, uh, I forget now, eight or nine seasons, I guess. Mm. So that the, tent must have been hot as well. Uh, That's it. well the, the tent was a lovely idea, and it really was a, a great way to launch the company. It was certainly eye-catching. But it was very, very sweltering in the summer and freezing in winter and impossible when it rained because you've got this, the rain pelting down on it. You know, uh, It was like being inside a, a bass drum. So um, for all its, uh, its uh, you know, uh, fanfare in opening, it was a good idea to get rid of it and just go into more conventional spaces that would work better. And then when was it that the company really started to branch out and tour nationally? Because that's really a big part of the character of the company now is its national tour going to up to 30 venues every year around the country. How, how long until you started doing that? Oh, I can't put an exact figure on that, James. Uh, we, went, we were national from the beginning. That was our, in, our announcement and our intention. And even though it was only Sydney, Canberra, Melbourne uh, to begin with, uh, certainly the education teams were going a, b- a bit further abroad. And little by little, we started adding more and more regional centres. And in those first few years, we didn't manage to get... We got to Brisbane and Adelaide and Perth. So we were determined to keep pressing that um, the image of ourselves as... The, a, a not the a national company, and uh, we just kept adding more and more venues as we became more uh, successful. And uh, various state governments came to the party and uh, supported us. And then you got uh, a young Peter Evans on board. Um, I think it was in the late nineties. He directed a kind of heavy metal grunge version of Macbeth that toured the regions as well. Yes, it did, and it also played inside one of the detention centres, which was quite an experience, Mm -hmm. uh, a women's detention centre. And uh, that was a a, a very interesting experiment, and when I was determined that we should carry on in the future too, and we have done other uh, workshops and uh, work with uh, young people in in detention, uh, which is another important branch of the company's work, I think, now, over your time with Bell Shakespeare, you brought in a number of um, uh, different directors from around the world, and um, most notably, you worked, uh, you played Coriolanus for Stephen Burkoff. Now, what was Burkoff like to work for? Was he a hard taskmaster, or did, did you guys get along well? Uh, we, we got along fine. Um, uh, he, he could be a bit of a... a, a well, I wouldn't say a bully. Um, <laughs> well, I will say bully sometimes. Uh, he, he knew what he wanted and he d- demanded um, he, that he get what he... We, we fulfilled his vision, if you like. Right. And he's a very physical actor. And so he would demonstrate exactly what he wanted done. And oh. what you had to do was r- really mirror him. Yeah, right. And carry out the kind of choreography <laughs> like that he was... <laughs> uh, very much do it like this. Yeah and uh, do it all to a certain musical beat and so on. So it was highly choreographed, almost balletic in a sense, a lot mm. of his work, but very striking and very powerful. And um, he had a great sense of humour and he, he loved, uh, you know, he liked working with the blokes. He wasn't terribly good with the women. I think he actually never actually learned their names. Mm. Um, but he was very blokey and he liked working with the blokes and all the sort of the grunty physical stuff. And uh, I think the production was um, uh, a little... Um, uh, what was I say? A bit, too, a bit too slow and a bit too long at times. Right. A bit in self-indulgent uh, overall, but some very powerful images and some some very powerful physical work. And of course, it's a very difficult play as well. You've got to really sort of uh, uh, get to empathise with these characters. And I think it perhaps was a little bit inhuman in that way. It didn't really uh, win our hearts over to the, the main characters. And then famously, Kosky's Lear as well, which uh, really stirred things up. Um, that stirred yeah, the possum, yeah, all right. Yeah, it sure did. Stirred several possums. That one. <laughs> what was the reaction to Kosky's Lear? Because I, I, pe- people still think about it and talk about it. We still hear about it in the office today. Yes. Uh, well, it put us alongside Kosky's other work. It was probably no more extraordinary or extravagant than other things that he's done. Uh, I mean, he's always uh, you know creates tremendous excitement and controversy, and uh, you know. Um, he does, I think his work is, is uh, fascinating and uh, most of the stuff that I've seen I've been totally blown away by. But it's when you meddle with something as sacred as King Lear, I suppose, that that's what gets the possums stirred. And uh, it was a very powerful piece, uh, visually extraordinary, full of marvellous images and ideas. Um, and uh, it, it caused um, 
yes, uh, sharply div divided audiences. Mm. Sometimes people yelling out rubbish during the curtain oh. call <laughs> and uh, people stamping out and making a great noise about exiting. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, it was uh, it did all the things that theatre is supposed to do, I suppose. Have you stayed in touch with uh, Barry at all since he's been off in Europe? Uh, only once or twice when he's been out here a few times and we've said hello, but yeah. uh, I haven't kept up a correspondence, I'm afraid, no. But I was very, very fond of him. He was, uh, he was delightful to work with. Uh, he was great fun, no matter how intense the work. He, he was always you know, sitting at the piano, tinkling out oh, yeah. uh, pop, so pop songs and, uh, <laughs> and joking and laughing. I think he had the right attitude that uh, the more serious or profound the work is, the more playful you have to be, rather than take yourself too seriously. Right. If you're doing comedy, well, that's a very serious business. But if you're doing tragedy, <laughs> you have to have a sense of humour about it and not uh, not get too solemn. So I, I right. think that was a very valuable lesson. I've always tried to find people I could learn from. That's why I got him to come and work with the company and Stephen Burkoff and Michael Bogdanoff. Mm. I, I tried to contract directors that I could learn from uh, who were better than I was and who I could, uh, you know, see how they worked because most act most directors don't get to see other directors at work they see the product but they don't see the process and i was really keen to see the, the process of those three directors in particular and i think i did learn quite a lot from all of them in uh, the sort of mid 2000s uh, marion potts came on board with the company and she directed you in king lear and that was the second time you'd played the role what more did you discover about king lear when you came back to it how hard it was. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, it's an absolute killer. As some critics said, the, 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 the sides of the mountain are littered with corpses of actors who tried to play King Lear. <laughs> and uh, I must say, I have never yet seen a King Lear that has been totally satisfying. Mm. It is so vast, it is so big uh, in its um, ideas and its passions. Uh, you could, all you can do is scramble uh, halfway up the cliff but I don't think you'll, you'll ever get to the top in a, in a production that's totally satisfying uh, on every level. Uh, the one I wish I had seen was Paul Schofield's uh, production with Peter Brook, which has become legendary and uh, hailed as perhaps the greatest by those who saw it. Uh, all we have is the, a film version, which is not, I think, entirely successful, uh, rather disappointing that, that Brook made. Um, but uh, it, it is... Uh, uh, such a totally demanding piece and it's very uh, a very cruel piece it demands so much of its audience as well as its actors and director that uh, it's one of those some uh, critics have said it's it's impossible to stage it's better to read it well of course one, one disagrees with that i mean all shakespeare is meant to be performed all you can do is keep on trying and uh, you know you'll, you'll get somewhere with it you won't get to the top and you won't you might get at least halfway there or you know, some distance yeah. and that itself that the journey is worth the effort yeah absolutely would you have another crack at it do you think uh i think probably no i wouldn't have the puff okay. to, get, to get even halfway up the top <laughs> I, I don't think so i think one should uh, retire gracefully from the field and <laughs> admit defeat on that one you know john um You've spent about 65 years with Shakespeare. You know, if we go back to when you were first introduced to Shakespeare by the brothers at uh, at Maris Brothers, do you still, when you come across one of Shakespeare's plays, learn something new, discover something new after these years? Every time, every time. I, I still read Shakespeare a lot and I like rereading all those plays that I haven't done you know, some of the more uh, lesser performed plays. I, I enjoy reading those and exploring them. And it's every single time you find uh, a different, well, a layer, not necessarily of meaning, but layer of reaction. You react differently to the play because of what you've lived through since. And Hamlet is no exception. You can know Hamlet back to front, inside out, as I think I do. But when I look at it again or read it again or see it again, I discover there's more because uh, um, I'm different now to what I was 10, 20 years ago. And uh, it is such a profound piece. Uh, but of course, that's not the only one. They, they're all very profound in their various ways. Uh, but the hard thing about Hamlet is he's supposed to be played by a very young actor, around about 20. Uh, he's at university still, that's undeniable. Um, but by the end of the play, he seems he's older. Uh, he, Hamlet says to the gravedigger, how long have you been a gravedigger? And he said, I, was, I came to it the day that young Hamlet was born. I've been uh, grabbed to hear man and boy for 30 years. So now I'm, 30 I'm years, 30. Yeah. So the play hasn't mm. taken 10 years to happen. It's only taken uh, a mm -hmm. couple of months 
in terms of the action. Mm. But uh, I think Shakespeare is playing that tricks with time. So Hamlet has now grown up. He's matured from uh, a 20-year-old. He's now 10 years old, uh, inexperienced. Hamlet, uh, in those three hours in the theatre, he goes through a lifetime's experience. And he grows up and uh, he discovers new things. And when you come back to that play and you read those speeches, you find new layers, not so much of meaning, but of relevance to yourself and your own life experience, what you've been through and what the world has happened, been through since you last read the play. So that's why it keeps, sh- keeps shifting, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly I found, um, you know, when my father passed away, and that's about five years ago now, coming back to Hamlet and reading that line, he was a man, take him for all in all, I shall never look upon his like again, took on a, an entirely new, deeper meaning yes, for me. Yes, yes. And even Hamlet's the, the most famous speech, the to be or not to be speech about speculating about um, not so much life after death as life in itself, you know, is life worth living? Um, what's, what's the point? That is the eternal, <laughs> eternal existential question that we do keep asking ourselves in various forms according to, uh, you know, what's going on around us and what's happening in our own private lives. So there are big, uh, you know, insoluble questions and, uh, and situations that are set up that all we can do is, uh, is speculate and uh, meditate on them. You're listening to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. My guest today is John Bell. Now, John, you were going to perform a one-man show called One Man in His Time this year at the Sydney Opera House for Bell Shakespeare, but, of course, COVID uh, got in the way. Can you tell me a bit about that show? What, what was going to be and what is going to be in that show? Some of the ideas in Shakespeare, some of the issues um, about power and authority... Um, about um, uh, things that he went through when he was writing King Lear, uh, about that resolution I described about his coming out the other end and writing those romances as, as, as a sign-off, uh, exploring just aspects of his thinking and his life. Uh, not, it's not sequential uh, and it's not, um, you know, it's, not, uh, it's not academic, it's just my reaction to certain uh, situations and plays and characters that I've done um, it's not just a, then I played this, then I played that. It's not, it's not autobiographical. It's just my speculations and ideas about some of those characters and plays. You know, John, um, one of my favourite um, experiences of, of watching you in the theatre, there have been many, obviously, but was when you took on Falstaff in Henry IV, uh, part one and two. Um, why had you not played Falstaff before? Because clearly you were made to play that role. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I guess um, one is, thinks, well, I'm not the right physical type for it. Right. Uh, that can be over- overcome, of course. Uh, and I was a bit frightened of it. It's such a hugely uh, um, sort of uh, uh, outrageous kind of character. Mm. But you can't be just outrageous. You have to have a sort of a other part of his humanity as well. I, I was just a bit, uh, a bit frightened of, uh, of it. And uh, I thought I should have wait till I was a bit older and more experienced and had a bit mm. more technique. Um, and then I cast John Gayden to play it in my first production of Henry IV. And mm. John Gayden's even skinnier than I am, I think. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, well, if, if Gayden can get away with it in a fat suit, I needn't be frightened anymore. I can probably do the same thing. Yeah. And uh, so when I did it again, I took on the role of Falstaff myself. And I, I must say, I did enjoy it. It's a, a most, um, a most wonderfully uh, warm and uh, and engaging character, even though he's a thief and a braggart and mm. a liar. It's, it's, mm. it's, he's extremely human. Yeah, and he's got a lot to say about honour, about uh, what it is to be a, a good leader, a good friend. Uh, yes, indeed. Yes, there's a great wisdom in, in Falstaff as well as his uh, uh, disreputable side. Why does Shakespeare drop him in Henry V? Because at the end of Henry IV, part two, he says, I'm going to continue the story yes. with John. Yes. And then, you know, he dies off stage. Why? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think uh, I've read quite a few critics on this, and I think there's a general agreement that Falstaff would simply have swamped the play. Right. He's, uh, he'd, he's too big, he's too, he's too funny, he's too interesting. Uh, and Shakespeare really wanted Henry V to be about Henry V mm. and not about Falstaff with Henry V as a sort of a walk-on character. Yeah. So I think he wisely dispensed with him to give, uh, to give Hal a bit of breathing space. 
I always imagine Will Kemp, the original actor who played Falstaff, kind of furiously walking up to Shakespeare saying, what do you mean you've cut, you've cut Falstaff <laughs> out of Henry V? The people well, want to see me. <laughs> it's entirely possible because Kemp did leave the company in a bit of a... a yeah. Rather fretfully, I think. Around that time. From That's record, right. yes. So it's entirely possible. Yeah. But I think if Shakespeare wanted, wanted to write the story of Henry V, he couldn't have false stuff in there as well. It was just right. uh, so the, mm. the room wasn't big enough for both of them. <laughs> and I also loved um, when you played Jaques in Peter Evans' production of As You Like It. And obviously there's that wonderful speech, the, you know, the seven ages of man. Um, how do you play an iconic speech like that without it sounding like a set piece? Because the way you delivered it, it was just part of the play and suddenly we're in the middle of it. What's your thought process in, in rehearsal to rehearsing a quote-unquote famous speech? Well, I think partly take the audience by surprise. Don't, don't signal that you're going to go into it. Just mm. sort of, uh, you know, slip into it un unnoticeably. But also to personalise it as much as possible and to make it a character piece rather than a, um, a declamation. And I had my... Um, my ideas about Jaques based on a couple of people I know uh, who are both world-weary and bitter and uh, no. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> sceptical and so on. So I, I did, I did personalise it. But that's, that's only one way of doing it. You could also play that speech. I saw Billy Brown do it once, uh, very, very affably and very kind of, in a rather melancholy, but in a very good-humoured way. And that worked very well too. I thought that's another way you can do that speech. It doesn't have to be the way... That my Jake has played it. Uh, the Shakespeare's open to so many different in interpretations and colours. John, what do you think is the future of Shakespeare in Australia? What, what are the next 65 years look like? Will we still be doing Shakespeare in another 60 years? Well, if the theatre survives, uh, I can't see why not. And I don't mean that lightly. I mean, theatre as we know it is no, no longer exists at the moment here or anywhere else in the world. Uh, it will no doubt make some sort of comeback, but we don't know in what form that will take. Um, and it might be hard to woo people back into theatre. They'll be so uh, hooked on uh, Netflix and uh, entertainment at home and other ways, other forms of relaxation. It might take quite a, a long time to rebuild uh, a thriving theatre audience, I suspect, in a way that is comfortable and, uh, and really sort of communal. Um, but if that can happen, and I certainly hope it does, uh, theatre has lasted, lasted lots of problems and uh, difficulties, uh, then I think Shakespeare will be a part of it because there are always actors and directors who want to do it. And if they want to do it and will sacrifice themselves to, to make it happen, then Shakespeare will uh, uh, you know, be part of our language. But it has to be performed. You can't have it up there on the bookshelf and say, well, there's Shakespeare. It's not. It's when you get it off the shelf and start speaking it and playing it to each other that Shakespeare comes alive. And you have to do it in a way that makes sense to you at the time, rather than try to hark back to some older tradition. So those traditions will have will and truly disappeared by the time we're back in business. And I just hope that there'll be a new generation of actors and directors who will uh, rise to the challenge to give us the Shakespeare that we need, uh, you know, for the next generation. John, thank you so much. Now, just before we wrap up our episode today, we have one more segment. It's called The Final Five. I've got five quick questions for you. I need five quick answers. Okay, here we go. I think I know the answer to the first one. As an actor, do you like to be the lover or the villain? Oh, has to be the villain. Much more, <laughs> much more fun. Much more fun. John, what do you think is the most underrated Shakespeare play? Oh, I think some of the uh, ones that are less performed because they are not entirely pleasant uh, plays like Measure for Measure, Troilus and Cressida, I think uh, these are plays that are powerful uh, and need to be seen more often, but uh, need a very, very careful treatment. Who is your favourite actor you've never worked with who you would love to work with? Well, I can think of a couple of people that uh, would be fun. Uh, I can think of Jack Nicholson and Peter <laughs> Ustinov, because I think okay. they're both very playful and uh, give you something that you weren't expecting, and that would be quite a thrill. John, is there a dream Shakespeare role that you haven't played yet, just one that you've got your eye on that you'd love to do? Well, I would quite like to do Measure for Measure and alternate as, mm. uh, as, uh, as Angelo and the Duke. Right. They are chalk and cheese and both fascinating characters and if one had uh, another actor uh, as a partner and you alternated those two roles, that would be a very fascinating experience. 
And John, finally, if you weren't an actor, if you weren't in the performing arts industry, what would you be doing? Well, I might be painting. Uh, mm. when I, before I started to read and uh, get into theatre, I was passionate about drawing and painting. And that remained my passion until the day I discovered Shakespeare and suddenly that all went out the window and I've been acting ever since. But if I had to go back to something, that's a passion that I could revive quite easily, I think, and would enjoy. John, thank you so much. And can I say uh, from a personal point of view, as someone who was personally inspired by you to come into this industry and on behalf of thousands of other actors and theatre practitioners and people who work in the performing arts, thank you so much. James, it's been a very great pleasure. Thank you so much too. Bell Shakespeare is Australia's national Shakespeare company. We perform in theatres and schools in every state and territory. If you'd like to support our work or to learn more about what we do, please visit bellshakespeare.com.au. Speak the Speech is produced by Bell Shakespeare and edited by Camillo Zanoni. Be sure to follow at Bell Shakespeare on social media and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the Speak the Speech podcast through your listening platform. 